This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we here at Radio Parallax certainly hope you're having a, a good start to the holiday season as we move between Thanksgiving and um, Christmas. Can I play it? Okay. enough but you know if we are going to meander into christmas music why don't why don't we why don't we do some of the best stuff just just for a little sampler no no the tune the tune i'm thinking of is sleigh ride by the ronettes Uh, we originally envisioned having a talk with um, some good friends of ours about that conference that we mentioned that took place back in uh, Pittsburgh, PA, at the Cyril Wecht Institute for Forensic and Law. It was in conjunction with the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. And although we find that to be a worthy topic, it turns out that our guests that we we're having lined up just, well, it just didn't pan out. And that's just as well, I guess. We'll get around to that in the future, but for you know today's show, I think we'll at least start out with some um, lighthearted fare and some follow-ups. We do, in our second half, have Stephen J. Harper lined up to speak with us. He is always a very interesting guest, and I think we'll talk about matters related to law, which, which is fair enough, I think, as he is an adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University in Chicago. In the meantime, let's quote from Bob Newhart. Said the venerable comedian, I don't like country music. But I don't mean to denigrate those who do. And for people who like country music, denigrate means put down. And here's one I don't know if we did this, Mr. McMillan, the one about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not ringing a bell. Well, okay, I don't think, maybe we didn't do it. Anyway, the meme that I have, which I find highly amusing, relates to the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, from Austria, uh, was born speaking German, but nevertheless wasn't allowed to dub his own role for Terminator, the first one, in German. That is because his accent is considered very rural, shall we say, by German-Austrian standards, <laughs> and they felt it would be too ridiculous to have a high-tech machine from the future come back in time and then sound like a hillbilly. Das ist nicht gut. <laughs> I'll be back. Yeah, well, one thing you say about Arnold is he does bounce back from little setbacks in life. No, Miss Millen, I'm not contending that his marriage to Maria Schreiber was any sort of setback. No, that, no. 
You know, a couple of decades back when Arnold managed to stumble his way into the governorship of the state of California, you know, Radio Parallax was there to cover that event. And that was, it was interesting. Rode my bicycle over to the state capitol and mingled with uh, the likes of Jack Valenti, who was a fixture in the motion picture industry. And before that, uh, Lyndon Johnson's, uh, well, the press derided him as Johnson's valet. I remember seeing Jamie Lee Curtis walking around. And uh, quite a number of, uh, of movie star types in the crowd, which is not a common occurrence down at, uh, at the Capitol. We think we do need to give Schwarzenegger credit from time to time for some of his more sane statements, even though he is um, <clears throat> a prominent Republican. I remember well, he's looking back at the uh, Republicans' trumped-up charges against Bill Clinton and the impeachment uh, charges that were brought against uh, the president and Schwarzenegger commenting on it and saying he was, he was embarrassed to be a Republican when that was going on. Ms. Rowland suspects he's even more embarrassed now, but that's another story. Here's a meme that we have to like and I think have to quote on today's program. It was titled, Journalism 101. And the quote was, if somebody says it's raining and another person says it's dry, it's not your job to quote them both. Your job is to look out the window and find out which is true. Yeah, I just read a, 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 a comment from The Guardian, which at the time was asking for uh, funds, and they pointed out that uh, unlike a lot of news outlets in America, The Guardian does not try to put forth false equivalents and pretend that that's producing balanced reporting. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, they don't see it as their job to say that, uh, you know, someone says it's raining and someone says it's dry. They, they'll take a position, which we applaud. Now, we, we promised, I, I guess, a week or so ago that we would do some follow-up that we had not yet done about the story that a bite from a Brazilian wandering spider can cause a prolonged erection. We, uh, we thought this was a, a story worth, worth checking out, and happily, we've now done so. To do this, we went to one of our great standbys, which is Snopes.com. Now... What's fascinating to me and surprising to me was I took a look at their um, examination of claims, and they'll usually rank them as to whether they're true or not true or somewhere in between. And uh, they ranked this one true, yes, to the claim that a bite from a Brazilian wandering spider, Phonutra nigraventer, can cause an erection that lasts up to four hours. Well, they came back with true. And that's the good news. Now, some months ago, a website titled First Doctor posted what it asserted to be an exclusive finding on the social media platform X, which was formerly, of course, known as Elon Musk's folly. No, it was formerly known as Twitter. In the red-hot headline that said exclusive, the text was, a bite from a Brazilian wandering spider can cause an erection that lasts up to four hours. Scientists are studying a component of the venom known as TX2-6 for use in treating erectile dysfunction. Note Snopes, that was far from exclusive or even remotely new. The two claims in the tweet were factual. A bite from the spider can indeed result in a long-lasting and painful erection, a condition known as priaprism if it lasts more than four hours and the penis starts to become painful. While the toxicity and high risk of death posed by the chemical thought to be responsible for the erections, makes its use as a potential ED, erectile dysfunction therapy, challenging, if not literally impossible. 
It has been used to develop similar chemicals that may have therapeutic potential. And here's the background. Phonutra nigriventris erection-causing effects have been known to science since the 1970s. The 1971 book, Venomous Animals and Their Venom, described priapistic effects of the spider's bite on mice and dogs. The authors also included anecdotal reports from humans who had been bitten, which was, quote, a pattern which resembles that of dog envenomation is also noted in humans bitten by Phonotria nigriventer. Local unbearable pain, salivation, visual disturbances, sweating, prostration, priapism, and death. But there is hope in this. Research published in 2008 identified the chemical within the venom that they thought was, was responsible for the erections. It is a peptide, now named PNTX2-6, which apparently enhanced erectile function in rats via the nitrous oxide pathway. And the interest in this toxin as a potential treatment stems in part because it operates in a completely different way than common ED treatments like Viagra. And in case you were in need of a medical briefing on the topic, we would quote from the report by NBC News in 2011, which notes that Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and other ED drugs on the market work by inhibiting an enzyme called PDE5, that's phosphodiesterase 5, to get an erection, a man's body must release nitric oxide. That relaxes the smooth muscles around the arteries of the penis, allowing for these vessels to dilate. And in the spirit of Bob Newhart, we would note that dilate means to expand. The nitric oxide is the first step in a series of chemical reactions that allows the muscle relaxation to take place. One step in the series is cyclic GMP, a signaling molecule that acts to keep the muscles relaxed. PDE5 degrades cyclic GMP, and that's a good thing for ensuring that erections don't last forever. Anyway, jumping ahead, by blocking that enzyme, PDE5 inhibitors promote erections. The spider toxin works differently. Instead of affecting PDE5, the compound seems to trigger nitric oxide release acting directly to relax the smooth muscles. Because about 30% of patients don't respond to PDE5 inhibitors, the toxin could provide an alternative to ED treatments currently on the market. So we've swung from good news into bad news, back to good news it would seem. But hold on, in 2022, the same research group responsible for identifying this compound published a paper arguing in part that due to the extreme pain and high toxicity of the chemical, its therapeutic use is impossible. But it is an excellent pharmacological tool for studying erectile functions. And that study synthesized a new peptide, PNPP-19, based on the toxin original. And that compound appears to have a potential to cause erections without the pain or toxicity or death of the spider venom. Anyway, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and since we've stumbled into a bit of physiology and, and, and you know, uh, who expected that, I guess we should cite a paper that I found recently that kind of whooped me upside the head. It was from The Guardian, and the title was Burn, Baby, Burn, The New Science of Metabolism. 
I think I'll quote from it. As a director of the Energy Metabolism Laboratory at the USDA Nutrition Center at Tufts University, Susan Roberts has spent much of the past two decades studying ways to fight the obesity epidemic that continues to plague much of the Western world. But time and time again, Roberts and other obesity experts around the globe had found themselves faced with a recurring problem. While getting overweight individuals to commit to shedding pounds is often relatively straightforward in the short term, preventing them from regaining the lost weight is much more challenging. According to the University of Michigan, about 90% of people who, use, who lose significant amounts of weights, whether through diets, structured programs, or even drastic steps like gastric surgery, ultimately regain just about all of it. Why is this? Asks the piece. Scientists believe that the answer lies in the workings of our metabolism, the complex set of chemical reactions in our cells, which converts the calories we eat into the energy our body requires for breathing, maintaining organ functions, and generally keeping us alive. When someone begins a new diet, we know that metabolism initially drops because we're suddenly consuming fewer calories. The body responds by burning them at a slower pace, perhaps an evolutionary response to prevent starvation. But what then happens over the following weeks, months, and years is less clear. Researcher Susan Roberts asked, does metabolism continue to go down more than it should? Or does it initially go down and then bounce back? This is an enormously controversial topic and one that we're looking to address. Anyway, as someone who went to medical school some decades ago, I, I have to sort of laugh at the fact that we're still trying to work this out. Apple cider vinegar. Yes, I guess as an editorial, we could note that Mr. McMillan is reporting wonderful results through his use of apple cider vinegar. Perhaps at some point after everybody has enjoyed their Christmas feasting, we'll let them come on and explain how it is they can drop some pounds come 2024. Suffice it to say that the reason this hasn't been worked out is that it is fiendishly complicated. And uh, yours truly will try to have a, a report on this as well. Although it, it may be very unsatisfying because... There's going to be probably a lot of, on the one hand, expert A says this, on the other hand, expert B says that. Which kind of reminds me of what former President Harry Truman once said about economists. He said to one of his aides, I believe, that you know what I need is a one-handed economist. I'm saying, on the one hand, we have this, and on the other hand, we have that. Are you comparing economists to doctors? No, 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 I am not. Thank God. Yeah. Although, despite my initial refusal to acknowledge it, as, as I think about it, I guess to a degree I am. And, you know, speaking of physiology, and God knows, I guess we are. I'm curious to see where 2024 is going to lead us in, in, as regards the story we reported first in January of this year about how ultrasound can perhaps rejuvenate cells. We read a report from a new scientist at that time from Michael LePage talking about how treatment with low-frequency ultrasound has restarted cell division in aging human cells and reinvigorated old mice. Like, now, like most things that generate headlines, this is sort of preliminary uh, research and preliminary findings, but boy, it would be nice if this pans out. We will investigate. Now, as our good friend Guy Tortorisi reported uh, to you directly <laughs> some months back when we had him on the show, uh, production of this program, unfortunately, often involves large piles of papers strewn about. And sadly, as I look around our nearby environment, uh, today's no exception. But as I searched amid those piles for things to talk about in the wake of uh, some of our original plans falling through, I was struck by the fact that we have a lot, a lot 
of negative news to talk about. It's always been our feeling on this program that if there's something bad going on out there in the world, we probably should be aware of it in order to address it and perhaps correct it. But as I look around these piles of papers, what I'm seeing right now is a tsunami of bad stuff heading in our direction. In fact, I stumbled upon one item from The Guardian a couple days back that is so discouraging that we're just going to give it a wide berth today. So I'm looking around for some good news items to uh, balance off the likes of that. And, well, here's a few of them. Down in the Amazon, apparently deforestation has slowed down since Luis Inacio Lula da Silva took over from Jared Bolsonaro, who between 2019 and 2022 publicly encouraged development in the Amazon he also watered down environmental protections and gutted ministries responsible for conserving the rainforest. During his presidency, the amount of Amazon forest lost increased by 60% over the previous four years. Since he took office in January of this year, Lula has restored funding for environmental protection and has reappointed officials. To which we say, thank God. It's not just because they're running out of rainforest, is it? I, 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 I don't think so, and, and I hope not. Now, one thing that may be of help to humanity in the, in the immediate future would be Kelp. A book came out earlier this year titled The Seaweed Revolution, explaining how it is that uh, this versatile algae may be of great help to we homo sapiens. A review of the book which was a new scientist, noted that next time you have maka sushi, consider the nori seaweed it is wrapped in. It might, well, help save the planet. That says Vincent Domiziel reveals in his book, The Seaweed Revolution, the potential of seaweed or marine algae to transform our world is huge. If we could grow it sustainably, he writes, seaweed could feed people, replace plastic, decarbonize the economy, cool the atmosphere, and clean up the oceans. Noting that's quite a promise, the reviewer says that Demisiel's well-placed to find out. He is senior advisor on oceans to the UN Global Compact, which is the largest bid to get businesses to buy into sustainable, responsible policies and then report on their progress. The article does note that the oceans, which do cover 71% or more of planet Earth, are largely untapped in terms of cultivation of 48 million square kilometers of cultivatable ocean, we use just 2,000 for food, which contributes only 2% of our caloric intake. Most of us could eat more seaweed and would probably be healthier for it. In Japanese cuisine, it already accounts for 10% of daily calories. And there's some good news amid all of this uh, mysterious physiology. The research on seaweed notes that nori contains phytosterols, which prevent us from absorbing cholesterol and, and may cut the risk of some cancers. Certain seaweeds also contain a wealth of fiber, vitamins, and, micro, and micronutrients, including omega-3s. The reviewer editorializes, Just think of the poor sailors who died of scurvy, not knowing that 400 grams of the seaweed below them would have met their daily vitamin C needs. This book is also persuasive about seaweed's role in absorbing carbon dioxide, saying it could mop up the equivalent of, of around 10 billion tons of CO2 per year, which is about a fifth of all annual emissions. Giant kelp in particular can grow more than 50 centimeters a day and absorb huge amounts of CO2. Of course, I do have to note that we have large kelp beds off the coast of California, which, you know, 
for a long time have been harvested. And uh, in recent years, thanks to a die-off of starfish and an explosion of the population of sea urchins, among other things, the kelp beds have been um, much reduced, which would be a good thing to try and work on fixing, wouldn't you say? And yes, Mr. Mullen, more, more sea otters could eat more urchins, and I suppose that, that could play a role in, in helping all of this. Then we could eat the sea otters. No, we won't. All right, and here's an item that just has to warm your heart. <laughs> the, the headline has to attract you. The headline is, Insect Thought Extinct Found in a Walmart. Yay! Here's the story. For the first time in more than 50 years, a giant lacewing has been found in eastern North America. The discovery raises new questions about the distribution of the Jurassic-era insect that mysteriously vanished from the eastern seaboard decades ago. The giant lacewing was once abundant across North America, but the insect's eastern populations began to plummet in the 1800s for unknown reasons, potentially due to the rise of urban development, invasive species, and artificial lights. Giant lacewings had never been documented in Arkansas before, so when entomologist Michael Scaveria of Pennsylvania State University spotted an unusual insect with a roughly 50-millimeter wingspan on the facade of his local Walmart, he assumed it was from a more common group of insects called antlions. I picked it up and walked around the store with it between my fingers as I did my grocery shopping and checking out and then held it the entire way home. Which, frankly, is the kind of thing we might have done. Unfortunately, he then killed it and pinned it, hoping to take a closer look, but it sat in storage for nearly a decade before he examined it again. He didn't make this revelation until 2020 while teaching university course on insect identification over video. Anyway, the theory is that this Walmart lacewing was a member of a relic population that has somehow managed to hold on potentially in the nearby Ozark Mountains. Finding this giant lacewing suggests there are likely other small populations of the insect holding out in the wooded areas in the east. Locating the insect in a suburban area also demonstrates the adaptability of the species, which has lived through the extinction of dinosaurs and the Industrial Revolution. Well, we hope more of these things turn up, whether in Walmart, Target, or, or other large chain stores. And we've often been amused by some of the headlines. I guess that last one was somewhat amusing. But we got one that'll top it. And, of course, this also comes from new scientists because they, they do like to put spicy headlines on some of their news items. This one has the headline, Zebra finches get out of tune if they don't practice daily. I think Mr. Ramil will verify that is a common problem among musicians of all species. According to the piece, songbirds may need to sing every day to maintain the quality of their performance. Male zebra finches, notes the article, learn a unique song, usually from their fathers, in the first 90 days of their life. They then th sing thousands of variations of it daily, and those songs are used to attract a female partner. But birds do continue to sing when they're isolated. Now, Satoshi Kojima at the Korea Brain Research Institute in Daegu, South Korea, and colleagues have discovered that having a break from crooning affects the quality of a zebra finch's song. And you know what? I think Frank Sinatra used to complain about that also. Here's the part that's disturbing. They stopped 16 adult male zebra finches from singing for two weeks by placing a small weight on their necks that prevented them from getting into the posture that allowed them to sing. The weight reported didn't significantly affect the bird's ability to eat or drink, at least says Kojima. The researchers removed the weights at night as the birds typically don't sing in the evening. 
When the birds were able to sing again, they sang in a lower pitch and for a shorter length of time, though they maintained the structure of their songs. Well, there you have it. Yeah, unlike zebra finches, my singing usually repels the opposite sex. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. But, you know, I just happened to notice adjacent to this article, which I just quoted, was a little item that uh, I suppose is maybe some good news, what we were just talking about. The item is that the mystery cause of a massive die-off of sea urchins has been identified as a parasite called aciliate. Up to 95% of the long-spined sea urchins on Caribbean reefs died in January of 2022, infected by a tiny organism covered in hair-like structures. So, God, maybe they can take those, uh, those ciliates and put them off the California coast and uh, restore our kelp beds. Well, that'll take the load off the sea otters. Yeah, I guess it would. If anyone out there is a ciliate researcher, please inform us of where this is headed at, info at Radio Parallax. And by the way, any of you other listeners who want to contact us for any reason, you too can drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. Now, as we go before the microphones today, there's much talk about El Nino and how this may affect our weather. And apparently we are in an El Nino year. But as we speak, November is coming to a close and we've had very little rain. And, you know, they said it's going to be more rainy, possibly here in California where we live. And then again, sometimes it has the opposite effect. I, I certainly hope we get more rain than usual. Last year was a bumper crop of precipitation and filled up a lot of our reservoirs, but boy, we sure could use more. Well, we'll see. It's going to play out one way or the other. So are you comparing weathermen to economists? Well, I, I guess I am, on the one hand. And in the final item of what I have to say is some pretty good news. It turns out that they're doing something right in Albania. No, Ms. Miller, it's, it's not the first time. The story is that there is, well, the last untamed river in Europe running from the highlands of Greece down through Albania to the Adriatic Sea. And luckily, a, a great plan they had to build a giant 43-meter-high hydroelectric dam with a vast reservoir behind it have been set aside. Someone realized that, no, it would be nice to have at least one one remaining untamed river on the European continent. And, and by God, this might be the only one. Article of New Scientist by Graham Lawton. And boy, we relied on New scientists today, which is a good thing to rely upon. The article notes that the Viosa River is special because it is entirely free-flowing, aside from the remains of the, the project, which he, he described a kayaking past. There are no dams, barriers, or artificial banks, and it will now stay that way. The piece notes that dams generate hydroelectric power but are disastrous for biodiversity and other crucial ecological gifts that river bestow upon us. So saving the Viosa is a big win for nature. And there are some efforts here in California to remove some unnecessary, perhaps, impediments to the flow of water in our state. We'll probably bring Dan Bacher uh, back on the show at some point, uh, if not this later this year, but next year, to, uh, to relate some of these tales, which uh, he's a big advocate for. We've talked about that marvelous book uh, by Mark Reisner titled Cadillac Desert, which told the story of how, uh, how water was uh, moved around in, uh, in America, particularly the West. And he explained very clearly how it is that when you build a dam, it's, it's a temporary structure 
by virtue of the fact that the reservoirs behind it fill up with silt. And eventually, the reservoirs behind them become meadows. And I often wonder, what is it they're going to do when, when all these dams silt up? How do you then deal with the fact that you now have flat land a lot higher than the land below it with a big concrete structure impeding the path? At some point, are they going to just bust a hole in the dam and let the water go down? I don't know. I don't know. Any hydrologists out there? Info at Radio Parallax. I would note also that there's an excellent chance that yours truly will travel to that part of the world in the year to come. And I think now I'm going to add uh, a look at the Viosa River to my uh, visit to the Balkans. All right, let's, let's take a, a short break here. Uh, you're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got uh, Stephen Harper coming up next. You're going to want to stay tuned for that because he's always good.